Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Finding the Frame. We have the amazing cinematographer Mandy Walker, ASC, ACS here joining us to discuss everything career, creativity, and her latest project, Elvis. How is it? Hi, good. Hi, good to be here. Thank you so much for taking some time. I know that you have an amazingly but busy schedule with everything that's going on for the nomination season. How has that been so far? Um, pretty exciting, actually. I mean, f for me, first time being nominated for the ASC, the BSC and BAFTA. Um, and I won an award in Australia for the um, at the Australian Academy uh, for Cinematography for this film. The first woman to win ever, so that was pretty exciting. And, um, yeah, so I'm just really busy but enjoying it. Well, congratulations. We are Thank very you. hopeful for more nominations. I know there is one in particular that we're really excited about. But everything that you've done with Elvis, and obviously you have an amazing career, which we're super excited to talk about, but we're super thankful for all that you're doing for filmmaking because it's awesome to see. Thank you. Something that is particularly interesting, which I was talking to you about, is just Australia as a country is arguably one of the best filmmaking countries that I've seen on Finding the Frame. We've already had, I think, more than half of our guests have been Australian. And I just want from your perspective, I mean, you have some of the greatest directors, cinematographers, even actors mm -hmm. come out of this country. What makes Australia such a powerhouse, do you think? I don't know. I think, I know, because relatively we have a, quite a small population, about 24, 25 million or something. Um, I think it's, filmmaking has been part of our culture for a long time. And I think, you know, we were talking about that. I'm reading a book about the McDonough sisters, who I knew nothing about, and they were directing movies in the early 1900s, um, feature films, and um, were, the, you know, part of the first wave of, cinema in Australia and uh, so I think it has been around for a really long time and I think also Australians are really um, always um, kind of art is a very important part of our lives and and so uh, I mean as I was growing up I was always um, introduced to galleries and photography and and movies you know they were great movie going public as uh, when I was growing up so yeah it's always just been part of us I think mm -hmm. yeah I feel like there's a level of like um, 
what's the word that I want to use? Prestige, but almost expectation. Anytime mm -hmm. I see, because I love a lot of the directors, particularly that come out of Australia. And it's a, something about like the grit or the personality that's embedded within the culture, I think makes for really strong storytelling. And I'm never let down, especially in the episodic television. I feel like mm -hmm. Australia is very like tight in that regard. Yeah. It's really awesome. I know. I, and I don't know what it is. And cinematographers. Oh, like, yeah. John Seal and Russell Boyd and Peter James and Dean Semler and uh, there's just so many that, that I felt were um, doing great things when I was growing up mm -hmm. and so they were the people I was looking up to. Absolutely. Well, let's go into a little bit of your background, where you started. I was doing some research and I read pretty early in your life, you knew you wanted to be in film and mm -hmm. specifically a cinematographer. You worked in, I think, your local high school's TV station. Also, you were a very avid photographer. I would love to hear from your perspective what that period was like in your life and also how it shaped you mm -hmm. as an artist. Well, I think it started um, for me, my mum was uh, a painter like um, not professional at all, just did stuff for herself and drawings at home. So she was always doing things like that. And she took me to a lot of art galleries. And as I was saying, I went to the cinema from a really early age. And um, and then when I was in high school, my dad built me a dark room in the backyard in a shed. So I was doing my own black and white photography and developing and printing. And um, so when I was about 13 or 14, I sort of put two and two together and, and said, well, I really love films and cinema and I really love photography. It just seemed like a natural career for me to go into. And um, and storytelling, like I love storytelling. I was a great reader. And um, so then I did go and do work experience at a TV station and when I went in there, they said, um, when I was about 15, and they said, well, we don't have girls on the camera here so you know you maybe better think of something else and I just sort of ignored that and 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 um and thought well I don't really understand that so I'm going to keep going and and then um I went to uh I eventually went to college and I was doing like a humanities course and doing a cinema a cinema kind of um critic critique kind of uh, um course at night and one of the teachers there said I was talking to him and he said what do you want to do and I said I'd love to be a cinematographer and I don't know how to get in the film industry and then he said well there's a friend of mine who's making a feature film I'll give them a call and maybe you can get a job being a runner and I did and I got the job and I left college and I was 18 and um, then I just sort of Every time I was on set, I spoke to the people in the camera department and said, "This, hey, guys, hi, this is where I'd love to be and can I watch what you're doing and can I talk to you about it? And then from then on, um, you know, one of them recommended me to someone who's making a documentary and then I started actually, first off, I was doing work on feature films as um, a runner or a third AD and in the meantime I was working on some documentaries for nothing and um, some that were being done on the weekends or um, music videos and I sort of learnt that uh, area of filmmaking and then I became a loader and a focus puller um, and an operator and started shooting my own stuff over the next few years. So it's a sort of, I learned a lot on set by being an assistant, I think, and watching other DPs work and watching um, 
the, the, I think the, infor- the important thing I gained from that was about p- the relationships mm-hmm. and to see how the, um, the set worked and what everybody's job was and, and how they collaborated together. And that was a really great part of right. my education, I think. And I love your story particularly, and there's no right or wrong way of obviously navigating how to enter in the film industry. If you can get in and you do it one way and that works, that's amazing. But I love yours. We have a lot of people who do the very traditional route, mm-hmm. which that's also great. I'm a big advocate for academia. I love, you know, I think there's something to be said about structure, but similarly to you, Shane did something like that where he started as a grip. Yep. And I also do think, especially for a cinema photographer, those that get to start within the trade, maybe not at the top, like head of department, but can see how the department works being a a runner like you were. I think that's really strong for when you get to the point to be a leader, to know what the expectation is for everybody. And uh, yeah, it's really nice to be able to hear your journey. And you were in a particularly for, you know, um, just like representation, which was unfortunate. You wanted to be in film and you were working at the TV studio and you were told no because you were a woman. And I bet probably at the time there wasn't a lot of people within reach that you could look to that were probably following a similar path, right? No. Um, in Australia, I think it was much like here. Uh, there were hardly any women in the camera department at all. There was one woman who had shot something, Jan Kenny, and I went and, and, and met her and had a cup of coffee with her, and and um, she hadn't done a lot, but she'd had the opportunity to do one small feature film, and um, I spoke to her about it. But I think I just kind of powered on and, and just ignored it, really. And mm-hmm. and um, and you know, there was a few times where um, when I was a loader, mainly where people would question my ability and strength or whatever, and I just kind of ignored it and said you know, um, I can do this and did it. And I didn't make a big deal about it and I was always really positive. And so after a couple of weeks, they'd sort of forget that I, that it was stranger that, that they had a woman in the camera department and I was just treated like everybody else. You know, it's pretty cool. And I don't know where I saw this, but I saw some photos of you when like earlier in your career that are just really awesome. And I don't know if there's a place where you could direct people to see what some of those mm-hmm. are being you being on set, but you just had like some very like awesome BTS from back in the day that I feel like not a lot of cinematographers at least publish that right. I've seen. So I think they're on my Instagram. Yeah, maybe yeah, yeah maybe are. it was your Instagram yeah. where I yeah. saw them. So yeah. definitely check out her Instagram because they're really awesome. But going back to the just cinematography itself, obviously you fell in love with it or filmmaking really in general at a really young age. But speaking about cinematography, what did you like latch on? What made you want to go down specifically that mm-hmm. path? Was there something that really stood out to you? Well, I think it was um, it was going to the cinema and on uh, and. Also, when I was in high school, um, my dad used to take me to this place called the State Film Centre and they showed a lot of foreign language films and they had a big impact on me actually because it was the storytelling of people from other cultures and other countries and the difference that the cinematography made in telling those stories Mm -hmm. and how um, what I was learning about place and, and... you know, um, and culture from those films and how it affected me. And I thought 
that it wasn't just Australian stories that I was watching. I was watching things from all over the world. And that, to me, was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the the thing that, that um, I think pushed me into actually um, that job, you know. Do you have any films from that time that you really recommend or that resonated with you that um, you were watching? Oh, um, there was one Spanish film that I watched. I think it's called Spirit of the Beehive. Oh, Spirit of the Beehive, yeah. yeah, by Victor and Reese. Yeah. That director, I'm so glad that you brought that up. That film and El Sur, like two of my favorite films of all time. Really? And the way that he directs child actors. Yeah is crazy. I've never seen anything like it, and I love the cinematography. I always recommend both of those movies because they're just master classes in subtlety, Mm -hmm. in composition, and they're so beautiful. Yeah, and the lighting. Mm -hmm. I mean, they obviously didn't have a lot of money, but it's so beautiful, and it was so... I felt like I was in a beehive, you know, watching that film. And, Mm -hmm. and And, you know, I remember just sitting there going, why is this working? Why is this so great? And then... There was films of, like, I was obsessed by anything that Robbie Mueller shot, and mm-hmm. th- that was when I was very first starting as well. So he was a big influence on... on um, the American Friend. Yeah, so yeah in Paris, Texas. Mm-hmm. In- incredible. Amazing. And um, and also uh, just um, Wim Wenders' films in general and... Um, The holy German new wave and everything during that period. German cinema in particular. I know a lot of people talk about French new wave, but there's something about like new German that I think is just Mm. exceptional Mm. in the filmmaking style and the cinematography. Mm. And they're both like so good and each wave is so good because of the way that it interprets cinematography. But there's something about German filmmaking that is just absolutely mint. So. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. It did have an influence on yeah. me. Yeah, that's awesome. So I guess as your career started to progress, obviously you latched onto it and you knew you wanted to go down this route regardless if people believed in you or not. Mm-hmm. You were going to figure out a way. When did it start to click that, aha, I can do this? Was there a specific project that you were brought on as the cinematographer? Mm-hmm. What was the big next step in your career? Well, um, as I was working on films as an assistant, and I was also um, getting together with some of the other crew members and doing music videos or um, if a friend who was at film school needed someone to shoot their film, I was doing that um, in my spare time. And that was that was really important to me and that was how I think I learnt a lot of things by able to by being able to kind of test things and do crazy things for music videos and work out what worked and what didn't. And also shooting documentaries. I shot a documentary called um, As the Mirror Burns in Vietnam. I think it was like 1990 or something. It was a long time ago. And um, that taught me how to expose film because, again, like in those days when I first started, it was only film. There was no digital shooting. And um, all the films I was working on were shot on film. And I went away on this job and there was me the director, the producer and the sound recordist. And I had no assistants. I had no... I had two little what were called redheads, little 800-watt tungsten mm-hmm. lights in in, my, in a suitcase. And um, But what I did was I got to work with available light and I saw no dailies for the whole time, for five weeks. So what it did teach me is how to expose by thinking of the image and trusting my gut and understanding... Um, I did some tests before I left, so, you know, I was looking at the film stock and, and saying, well, the sky's going to be blown out here and this is how dark I can go in the shadow. And But I never saw anything. And then when I got back, everything was fine. And and 
I thought, well, okay, I get exposure now. And um, it's funny because, you know, we're talking about before before this started about the mm-hmm. transition of film to digital. And I still shoot digital like I shoot film. I approach it in the same way. I look at, I learnt the zone system before when I was learning how to expose the Ansel Adams zone system mm-hmm. about the grayscale. And that's how I look at an image always. And it, and it helps to um, create three dimensions by using tones and um, and colour, of course, and then lensing. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to trick your eye. But that's that was a really important part of, of how I, I learnt. Yeah, it's you can always... And it's not to say that people that haven't shot film can't be extremely talented as a cinematographer, mm-hmm. but it's always interesting to see those that are working today that have the opportunity to be in the industry before it was a digital like mm-hmm. format predominantly then was met with the transition and how they have adapted like yourself. Because similar to me, I started out on film and I feel like the perspective that it gives you when capturing an image, especially knowing that, all right, it's going to be delivered in 2D, but there Mm -hmm. is a 3D element to this. And I feel like film looking through the lens, not looking at a monitor, not looking at a plane, you Mm -hmm. get to understand that dimensionality more. And I like Michael Cimino, the director, he always talked about it being a ballet. So anytime I make a movie, I'm like, yeah, it's a ballet. And there's things that I have to like capture in front of me, even though it will be delivered 2D. But I want to hear more about that. What were some of the challenges when you saw the industry shifting, mm-hmm. it was becoming potentially more profitable to shoot digitally. Was it hard to figure that out at first or did you just take it on head first? Uh, I, well, I was not one of the earlier mm-hmm. adapters of shooting digital and, and the directors I was working with also were not. So um, by the time I think my first digital movie was, um, well, I can't even remember now, I think it was uh, The Mountain Between Us, was it? Anyway, mm-hmm. um, the that because uh, I shot Australia on film, and um, you I did f- hidden I, figures on film as I well. I did hidden right? figures on film. Yeah, I think for me uh, it was commercials. Commercials were the first things I shot on digital, and it was great because I got a chance to kind of mm-hmm. look at it in different um, situations, and because commercials are always really you know each one's very different to each other, and, and work with a lot of different directors, but. Um, I'm glad that I went to it at that time because I didn't want to be part of the the experimentation of the early part of it where I thought, um, well, this doesn't look as good as film and why am I using it? And and to me, I didn't want to do that. And I know some people did adopt it really early and were, were part of the development, you know, and give feedback and, and, and see the limitations of it at the time, but I didn't want to do that. So I didn't want to use it until I felt it was... Mm-hmm. almost you know yeah. in, a, in a place where uh, it could do the uh, the right job for the movie and not compromise yeah is there something that you like about digital that you weren't able to do with film mm. um yeah it's about seeing the image on set now and now with we have fantastic monitors um being able to be with the director and and be very specific about the way it looks and um know that what you're seeing is what you're going to get in the end. Mm-hmm. And it, because when, the thing about film, I mean, I I learnt in a time where in Australia we didn't have um, colour timing in our dailies. We would just have a one light work print, which means they you do a test and say, I normally overexpose by two-thirds of a stop on, on negative. 
and then I'd print it down for the da- for the dailies. And if I got the exposure wrong, nobody was writing that or or, or um, adjusting it. Where I know in the states they had color time dailies on pretty much most films. And so if I made a mistake, I saw it straight away. So I got very disciplined in knowing the limitations of it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was glad that I got to do that. And then um, now I'm very happy shooting digital. And I mean, I think there is a lot of um, things you can do to make it not look exactly like the last film you saw, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, whereas we used to shoot different film stocks and push it and pull the negative and and um, cross-processing and, you know, and negative also when I started when there was Agfa and Fuji and Kodak and... Um, and there was black and white and there were two options. different black and white. There were options and it really changed the way the film looked. And now you, you're you doing it more in a manipulative mm-hmm. process. Yeah, you don't quite have the options like you used to with film. But now with digital, you have all of these cameras, which are all relatively really good now. Yeah. We're not in a place like it was earlier in the digital era where, okay, I really like the look of an area camera, maybe not so much red or whatever it might be, but mm-hmm. now they're all really like strong cameras and it's a matter of the cinematographer bringing their skills to the table yes. now, lighting, which is really awesome. Now, going back to your career, I love how you've done a lot of like commercials as well, not just feature films. And something that's interesting with you is how you've balanced going between a feature film, a narrative project, then a commercial. Could you talk more about mm-hmm. how you manage that? Um, yeah, I mean, I really like doing commercials in between doing movies because it means that one, it's like I don't have to take a film for financial reasons. Um, also, I get to work with different directors, which is fun, and um, I get to meet directors and some of them which I've gone on to work with on movies. And also, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of variety and it's quick, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I learnt, you know, how to light cars and mm-hmm. something that I probably wouldn't have learned on a film. And um, so, yeah, I, I like it for that that reason um and and like being able to move between the two i mean i used to shoot music videos too which i don't anymore mm-hmm. i haven't done one for a really long time yeah I love, uh, just with your automotive commercials, I was telling you one of my favorites growing up, which I didn't know until just this week doing research, was the the Dodge uh, Challenger commercial. I'm not, when did that come out? Like 2010 or oh, something? Oh, I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah, around then. With George Washington driving the car, which I always thought, oh, that's so like funny, but it's also very fitting just mm-hmm. considering like the historical element of it. And it's so like... American, that commercial, which being, you know, from the United States, it has that like very patriotic feel to it, which I really loved. But um, when did you start considering, okay, you know, I'm starting to get some notoriety, I'm shooting on bigger projects. When did you start to consider the aspect of getting an agent and navigating those waters? Um, It was probably the time that I moved here Mm -hmm. because in Australia, there aren't, there is now just one agency, but not as not, it's not like here. It's more, you, you get work yourself and then you get somebody to negotiate for you if you're lucky um, in Australia Um, at the time that I was shooting anyway. uh, It was when I moved here. I mean, I came here after Lantana. I did a film, my first um, American film was Shattered Glass, which we shot in Canada, but it was a um, Lionsgate production. And that's when I got an agent. And then I moved from one to another and I ended up at ICM. 
mm-hmm. with Paul Hook, who I'm still with, and now they're CAA. Um, but that, yeah, that's that's when I did. And also, I didn't think that anyone was really keen on taking me on until I was in a position mm-hmm. to be, um, you know, worthy of doing bigger projects, you know. Yeah. And when you moved to Los Angeles, that had to have been purposeful, right? Was there a certain project or did you talk about being in the Australian market and what that meant for you now moving to a larger filmmaking market being Los Angeles? Well, I think I felt like it was time. Like I had shot 12 feature films in Australia and I thought I, I need to, to progress my career. And the way to do that was to move here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had also done a few American commercials that were come over, that had come over to Australia to shoot. So when I came here, I contacted those people that I worked with and I got a few little jobs. So when I was waiting for a film, um, I had commercials up mm-hmm. my sleeve, you know. Um, and, yeah, so Shattered Glass was the first American film I did and then I stayed after that. Yeah. And do you think for, like, a filmmaker that's maybe starting in Melbourne today, I mean, filmmaking has become such a global art form where <laughs> I feel like maybe it was a little bit different. Do you think that people still should consider that move? Or do you think it's possible to be a cinematographer like yourself and maybe stay in the Australian market? Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a good question. Um, well, I do know some cinematographers that do still live there um, because there's a lot of um, larger projects coming there now because of the tax breaks and things like mm-hmm. that. So, yes, you can. I think yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I always know that's very tricky is when to gauge moving, especially mm. an international move. Mm. And I don't know how hard it was back then versus now getting like a work visa so complicated. So it's in, it's always interesting hearing people's perspective on how to navigate those waters. I still think this is the best place to be, though. Yeah. Because this is the centre of where everything is. You know, the studios are all here. The equipment is here. And... Especially for me, like I notice when I go back to Australia to shoot, they don't have like all the opportunities to shoot with the remote heads that I'm used to or the cranes or the helicopter rigs or drones, whatever. There is a, it's such a smaller market. Mm-hmm. And, and here um, I enjoy the fact that I have everything available to me and the contacts. And, um, and I think because a lot of the projects originate here, even though I've never shot a film in Los Angeles. I've done a lot of commercials <laughs> here. Um, but um, the start, I feel like it's where things mm-hmm. start. I feel like Los Angeles is a really good like city for cinematographers mm-hmm. specifically because of the infrastructure. Not that it isn't amazing for producers as well, of course it is. But like directors, you can kind of be anywhere yeah. as a director. But a cinematographer, I will speak to that. I feel like the infrastructure is so refined in the accessibility to tools and obviously you have the community yes i think the cinematography community is also like one of the strongest the way that you guys help each other out so yeah that's super insightful so i would love to pivot things obviously Mm -hmm. your career has been amazing up to the latest release of elvis you had the opportunity to shoot a lot of great feature films from jane got a gun tracks which we were talking about Mm -hmm. uh you also did truth hidden figures the mountain between us milan which was also a relatively recent release. Now, you were saying that you got approached for Elvis, which you've worked with Baz on prior films like Australia and some of your commercials. Talk about when this film this film first came to your lap. What were your initial thoughts and what do you look for out of a script? Mm-hmm. Um, well, this is my fourth project with Baz, as you say. And so we've been working together for 20 years and um, 
really our working relationship. And so he brings me on really super early. Mm-hmm. And um, the script that he showed me at that time was incredible and he'd already done a lot of research. And he and Catherine Martin had been going through archival footage and, and um, he'd been working at Graceland for a year and a half. He'd been on the project for 10 years. Or it was something that was in his life for 20, 10 years. So then he brings me on and um, I was there for, I mean, we started talking and then I was there for Austin's audition and um, I'd be running around with my Leica camera looking at angles on his face and as he was performing to just start the process of, of angles on the dancing and and where he looked most like Elvis, you know. So... I'm there very, very early on. And, and for um, that was like nine months or something before we started pre-production. And then um, uh, I went to Panavision and spoke to them about lenses very, very early on because mm-hmm. I ended up getting Dan Sasaki to make um, two sets of lenses for me that were kind of an adaption of lenses that existed. The Sphero 65s went from the beginning of Elvis' life in the 50s up to the end of the Hollywood period. And then we went anamorphic when he went to Vegas. And so that was kind of um, part of the um, process of creating the different, Mm -hmm. the feel of the different um, time that he grew up and the environment that he grew up in. And and so um, the other thing was um, what Baz called the train spotting sequences, which was... Because, you know, we're working with a um, shooting the life of a person that existed, there's a lot of um, archival footage and there's footage online and there's concerts that you can go and see and there's um, a lot of photography and um, also, like, for instance, Wertheimer, you know, Alfred Wertheimer that was followed Elvis for quite a long time and documented his life and the concert at Russwood. So we had all that footage available to us. And what Baz wanted to do was create it exactly the same which meant the same lenses the same lighting the same time we would zoom in the position of the cameras and so I started researching that very early on and um, I worked out that with those two lenses I could get pretty much all the looks and then working with different lighting fixtures and having to get archival footage um, Again, I, I just would walk around with my iPad on a set and say, here, this is where this camera was, and then I'd get viewfinders and work out the focal lengths mm-hmm. and the zooms and um, and then scouring the um, Australian rock and roll industry, a lot of it, and old film studios for lighting fixtures because we had to get lighting fixtures from the f- 60s in... Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, for the NBC show and then the international showroom was like a huge set that we had we built from scratch on stage that went you know from big backstage area long side stage and dressing rooms onto the stage and the audience and we built like a third of the audience and then blue screen extensions just for that but most of it was in camera and anyway so that that was the first part of my um working out and then I would say you know we'd get the lenses and I'd shoot a test and um with Baz you never kind of do like a test of an actor standing in front of a grey piece of uh, card you know Mm -hmm. we had 
part of the elements of the set were there and the costumes and the hair and the makeup and we do everything at once and create these little um, scenarios. And some of them are in the movie. Some of the tests that we did, some of the test footage we did is in the film. Um, and um, also testing the looks and my LUTs for each of the Yeah, you build LUTs for certain periods of the film. Yeah. And I would love to know just to kind of like go in with using different lenses, having different LUTs. What were you trying to pull from the story when you read the script? You're like, all right, I want to change it for a period. Is there certain mm -hmm. things you were trying, that you were like particularly inspired by in fashion or look or something from that era? Yeah, I think, um, well, like, first of all, it was the archival footage. Mm -hmm. And then I looked into, like, for instance, in the 50s, a lot of still photographers as well. I um, saw Gordon Parks was one yes, of them. and Soul Lighter. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and the colour palettes that they worked in. So the, the between myself and the art department, the costume department, the makeup, we were doing that together. Um, so we would defer to each other, like I'd find something and I would go and show them and then we'd talk about colours and how would that colour register if I'm going with such a strong lookup table, you know, mm -hmm. and putting these strong CDLs on top of it and changing the colour of the image. And then, um, uh, you know, creating like a Kodachrome look for the 60s and then the 70s, there's a documentary called That's The Way It Is, which was one of the main um, references for that time in in uh, Vegas. And um, I got when I got the um, the anamorphic lenses, we based them on T series. This is after like talks with Dan Sasaki for mm -hmm. age because he's he kind of gets storytelling and emotion, you know, and he'll he'll talk about. Um, I mean, Baz came in too one day and, and spoke to Dan and, and Dan would be asking him questions about the script. And it's about finding the exact right feeling for um, each of these periods. And so, you know, uh, when he was in Hollywood, we went more Kodachrome and I went more contrasty with the lighting and there was more colour and there was more poppy, you know, um, primary colours. And in Vegas, I put all the aberrations back into those T-series lenses that would have been there in the 70s that have been kind of cleaned up and taken out now in modern anamorphic lenses. And then I had a, um, a Petzval lens, which was from a mm -hmm. lot of the dream sequences and flashbacks to just create like a, a vortex kind of feeling yeah. to the audience. And what was the choice behind the Alexa 65 mm -hmm. and going with such a large sensor? What did you want to like get with that? Mm -hmm. I remember in um, one of our first discussions, um, we talked about camera and we talked about maybe shooting film at some point. But because we we're going back and forward, all, you know, in our schedule between different periods and, and then um, and different looks, we decided that digital was going to give us more options and worked a lot with live grain and with the VFX department and the art department to get those looks for each sequence. But um, we, I remember thinking, well, um, Elvis' life is epic and why not use the most epic camera that we can? And, and this was the third time I've used that camera and the thing that I find is great about it is it has scale, which mm -hmm. we wanted for the concerts, but also is great... Um, at intimate moments because it has such a low depth of field when you get close to um, to something, you know, and, and close to a face, it becomes a really intimate camera. And and I think that it's, it's, like, it's like I always 
um, say, defer to. It's like Lawrence of Arabia, I felt, was Mm -hmm. like that. It's the epic scale and then it's the intimacy, and they did it really well in that movie with a large format camera. Absolutely. I mean, Elvis itself, the canvas is so large, Mm. and that's what's always interesting going into a Baz film obviously has done a lot of amazing films from Australia to The Great Gatsby. You kind of have this expectation it's going to be very grandiose. And mm-hmm. what is always the like hardest part to comprehend is the intricacy between sequences and his transitions. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I would love to hear more about is I'm assuming with how detail-oriented he is and probably with all of the time in advance, how was it just constructing the film knowing, because it's a layered, Elvis is a very layered film between the news clippings that come up or whatever might be flying across the screen. What was it like considering that will shooting the film well one thing about us all being there um really early on is that we have these discussions really early on and by the time we get to a set everybody is totally on board with what we're doing we've rehearsed it we've gone we've blocked it you know first we've rehearsed it we've gone to the sets as they've been built and walked around with cameras Baz and I would walk around with our Artemises and and our likers and take photos and just start thinking about mm-hmm. coverage. Um, but I think um, so. For me, there's three things that 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 um, he'd said to me very very early on when we we're talking about script was that the camera has to dance with Elvis. When he flies, we have to fly, and when there's an intimate dramatic moment, we have to be very elegant and slow down and observational. So I always had those thoughts in my head. And like you were saying, the transitions between each of the sequences we worked out beforehand. So especially because, you know, we shot things like Beale Street. We Mm -hmm. built four blocks of Beale Street on a back lot on top of a dump, an old dump in in Queensland. And um, there was a transition between the exterior and the interior of Club Handy. And he had... Um, always, you know, we did like, we had storyboards for some sequences, we had previs for some sequences and Catherine Martin works with um, a guy called Chris Tangay a lot who's like, he does like a lot of the concept art and he also does little previs um, movies for the transitions and that he was making those. And so between us and VFX, Altogether, we worked out how the transitions and the and the sequences would um, fit together, and also a lot of the um, split screen too. Mm-hmm. We we'd plan that, and and we'd have that sort of already plotted out. A lot of the integration of archival footage and things like that were um, were done so that I knew that on this side of the screen Elvis was going to be facing that way and, and then when he was in this Burning Loves concert he'd be facing that. So it was shot it like that yeah. and it was already planned. And then as well as being super meticulously planned because we also, when Austin was rehearsing, we would go to the rehearsals and when then we started doing like dress rehearsals to learn the choreography and all my team learnt the songs. So the camera, grip, electrics all learnt the songs and the choreography of Austin so that we could dance with him. Mm-hmm. And so we'd be up on stage and he knew that, you know, there was going to be a 50-foot crane coming right into two foot in front of his face at a certain point in time or I was going to have three cameras down here and one was going to be handheld with him, you know. So that, I think, helps a lot with um, time and mm-hmm. scheduling but also 
just so that everybody always was really aware of what we're doing. I mean, yeah. not to say that we didn't kind of um, do what Baz calls riffing, which is um, do some kind of coverage which we hadn't planned that we see on the day or we think of during the day or um, as we're shooting. Like we were always open to doing something yeah. like that. And um, but there's also you know the drama, the integration of the drama in in the music sequences. So that we always talked about and had had planned ideas for that. Yeah, no, it's really beautiful. The technicality of the film, it's a showcase with all of those moving elements. And I love how you talked about your departments all got on board with the dance and stuff because that is important. It's not just you as the cinematographer knowing mm -hmm. everything. You have to be able to translate that through the camera movement, through the lighting. And that also means that your team has to know what's going on, exactly what the director is expecting, Austin might be expecting. Uh, and that's really awesome to just see the synergy coming together because that's what makes a movie. And yeah. we love that. And something that I wanted to know about uh specifically was building these locations on set a lot of them you said were in a back lot and obviously mm -hmm. this was all shot in australia was it hard sourcing a lot of the materials what was it like recreating these worlds just to make sure that they were authentic i think uh yeah they well the like i was saying there's a lot of um available mm -hmm. um references for all these places where Elvis grew up and and you know we had to build everything because you know Beale Street in Memphis is not the same anymore and you know Tupelo where he grew up is not the same so we had to build it and um, we also built Graceland um, exterior on a back lot and then the interiors we did on stage um, and uh, yeah so awesome. yeah the, but for me it was like you know, I was saying before, finding the lighting fixtures to be in camera, that mm -hmm. was difficult. And then we had to, a lot of them, we'd find them in someone's garage and we'd have to strip them out and remake them or put LED fixtures inside. That's the other thing I tried to do too from, you know, during the concert sequences is there's obviously going to be lights in shot and have to look correct. But also I tried to integrate as much LED as I could because I have more control of that with yeah. the colour and the dimming and... I saw there was something that I read for the onstage performances when the mm -hmm. girls were like hanging over the lights. You yes. changed those out because back in the day that would have burnt you, right? Yeah. Those fixtures. And you were trying to incorporate them more traditional, but also using newer LED. And what LED fixtures were you employing for this project? A lot of them were, um, uh, you know, Arri um, S60s and 360s and... Um, we had some cream sauce units, but we built a lot of like our big soft boxes. We had these eight by eight soft boxes that had, um, I think it was six S60s in them. And um, and then we built a lot of smaller units that were little um, soft lights from LED ribbon in, and put them into like a, a small um, mm -hmm. frame with diffusion in front and they were light and we could handle them and move them around pretty quickly and then we had one that we called um the uh, it was like an eye light that that we made it, again it had led ribbon and diffusion it was like a covered wagon and that was on a boom pole and we had that a lot oh. for eye light and mm -hmm. because it's a soft light that doesn't uh light the shadows too much but you see the reflection in um in the actor's yeah. eyes. Do you have a scene or sequence, particularly in Elvis, that you're super proud of from just a lighting and lens standpoint? I think the, yes, I do. A few, <laughs> but the most, the biggest one, I think, the biggest challenge for me 
and the one I'm most proud of is the international showroom mm-hmm. because it's such a huge set. It was like a 300-foot set. It was gigantic. And um, the uh, to integrate that lighting and what we had to do, I had five cameras for the concert sequence. The first show that he did, we did it in, in one long shot. So he would be walking from behind the backdrop around the side of the stage and tuning his guitar going to the side of the stage and preparing, going on stage and then performing the concert. And we did it in one long shot. We did it multiple times, obviously, and I had five cameras everywhere. But we did do that in one go. And one shot was a steady cam that took him through that whole path and then went on stage with him mm-hmm. and did the whole performance. So that, to me, was the biggest... Because we had to also do all the lighting changes and the concerts. And I remember thinking earlier on, do I need to get, like, you know, a whole theatre lighting team in or concert lighting team in and then I decided that no I wanted to do it myself and and that I felt like I the people that I had working with my me my gaffer Sean Conway who's amazing and we both looked at we had neither of us had done it before but we decided we were going to take on that challenge and we had you know again I sang we had a lot of pre-production and we do a lot of planning and working stuff out so Mm -hmm. I didn't feel daunted by it but it was a great challenge. That's awesome. And with your gaffer and key grip, are these frequent collaborators that you bring on? I've worked with Sean from about five movies in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, my key grip, Greg Tidman, that was the first time I worked with him. I'd worked with him um, before when he was an assistant, but this was a big job for him. And he'd done a lot of second unit on big films. And this was the first time he'd done um, a key keying a big film like this. But yeah, he was great. And, and the awesome. dolly grip that we had, Brett... McDowell, I've worked with a lot as well, and mm-hmm. and he's incredible. And um, it was funny, you know, um, the other day Baz was talking about working with Brett, and Brett's worked on all Baz's movies that were shot in Australia, not Romeo and Juliet, but everything else. And um, he was bopping away on the crane during one take, and he said, oh, Baz, Baz, I've got to tell you, you know, um, I've worked on all these amazing films like The Matrix and Matrix and with you know, um, worked on The Thin Red Line and all these amazing films. But this is the best experience I've ever had. And it was because we really felt like we were at this concert and we were part of it and um, that we were they were all involved from very early on in the process of Mm -hmm. developing it and working out the coverage. And I think, you know, when you work with Baz, he's an amazing collaborator that gets everybody involved and listens to people and... You know, so like for me, when I went, you know, do my own research and then I come back and talk to him and I have ideas and he really loves getting people involved in in the whole visual language. Yeah, it seems like that's the story I always get to hear. And obviously his energy seems very intoxicating to have someone that's leading the troops. Because his visuals, like I said, they're so intricate. You have to have someone that's a really great communicator, but also gives you the reins as a department head or as a costume designer, whoever it might be, to bring your own energy and perspective into it so that's always really fun and I know it wasn't there but I wasn't there but we were talking about Baz at Camera Maj and how he had so much fun and one of the stories that I heard I think was the airy party where he was just dancing with everybody and I was like yeah based on what you're saying and what I've heard from just like personal experiences getting to work with him is probably very awesome yeah it's great and he's a very generous collaborator Mm -hmm. you know and um He's also, you know, he loved being at Camera Mart and he loved talking to students or young filmmakers and 
and he's very generous like that. And That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And he he loves working with crew and he does, you know, he has a speaker and he'll talk to, you know, uh, the focus puller on his on his megaphone and say, you know, Luke, Luke, you've got to pull focus quicker to the thing. You've got to feel the music. Come on, you know, it's, it's like all that. <laughs> so he involves everyone. He's That's like a awesome. conductor. Yeah, I was going to say, he's yeah. very much like a conductor. Very musical. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, his movies are always kind of a musical, whether it's the non-diegetic elements that he adds or the diegetic for yeah. a case of Elvis. It's really cool because he always, he's always, uh, his films are always so pop culturally driven too, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy. It's always different than mm. what you might expect from another director. But pivoting back to the language of Elvis, something I want to know about is just general rules of engagement. Did you and Baz formulate how you want a composition to be, whether if it's mm. Elvis on screen, hold him in a like specific composition? Was there anything that you guys derived outside of those, uh, like the three things that he initially said? It was more kind of, that's something that we talk about um, scene per scene, mm-hmm. you know, and whether we want to him to be central in in this moment or whether we want to feel he's on the edge or how we're going to use the depth of field in this certain um, sequence. Uh, it was more kind of a, a, a scene by scene thing. It, was, it wasn't like we had a rule that he mm-hmm. would always be in the centre at a certain time. You know, it, it was based on, you know, like I was saying, we did things like the tests that we did, really important tests was... Um, in that what we called the Vista Liner, which is the motorhome that was at MGM. And we built that sort of like in little sections for testing so that we could pull the crane right from the bedroom all the way out along it and out the front window for this one shot in when they're going to Vegas. And so things like that we would think about beforehand and have prepped and how, you know, where we saw Elvis when we were looking down the length of that. Like things like that and composition, we would definitely be walking around with cameras beforehand and think Mm -hmm. about the scene. That's awesome. Yeah, I love the intricacy. The camera movement's really nice. So I didn't know, like, if throughout the film there was an arc or something that you were trying to do with the camera movement. But what tools did you employ? It sounds like you had a dolly pretty consistently, a techno crane. Did you do a lot of steady cam, handheld? It seemed like you switched it depending on a what. A bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think we well, we always had a 45-foot techno and a matrix head, and we had a, a 23-foot techno as well. Mm-hmm. So that was always handy because a lot of time we shot, pretty much three cameras all the time and um for the concert sequences we had five yeah and um yeah there were different you know it was always about you know emotion and what felt right for the scene and there's one thing I did want to you've reminded me of Mm -hmm. that I want to talk about how we covered stuff is you know there being kind of um, cognizant of all the different things that are going on, but also performance. Like it's really important that the actors, you know, when we rehearsed with the actors, so they felt comfortable with the cameras on on these big cranes and or if they're handheld or if they're Steadicam running around. And there was one sequence that we did um, for uh, Graceland where Priscilla leaves Elvis and we had the set built, so the downstairs of Graceland was at one end of the stage and the other end of the stage was the bedroom. And But they, you know, they weren't connected. And the actors had asked if they could do the scene in one um, with, uh, without cutting and, and overlap. And then Baz kind of looked at me and went, well, why don't we just overlap the two locations? So we we rehearsed with them in the bedroom and then... We all ran with the cameras 
to the other set, kept rolling and continued the scene. Mm-hmm. And all the the dimmer board would bring down all the lights on one set and bring up on the other. And, I mean, it's not a documentary. It's We're doing drama, so we had to keep the same feeling going and the same lighting everything. But it was kind of a way of, of like, everybody mm-hmm. getting together and making something unusual happened that worked for the actors that's cool and yeah and everyone was on board because they felt involved you know right yeah there's nothing better than feeling like you're giving a piece of the project like you're giving to a piece of the project Mm -hmm. which that's really awesome yeah which scene was that again it was when priscilla leaves elvis and she wakes him up in the morning in bed and she's packing and then they both run downstairs yeah. and they run down the stairs and he cries at the bottom of the mm-hmm. stairs and she goes and they decide they're breaking up. I'll have to rewatch that. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. we did it in one go with there, three cameras. And there was another scene, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I remember reading that another scene that was particularly hard to cover was in the backseat of the limo because you had to cross coverage and do cross key and everything. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit? That's another scene where, well, we that was in the Pullman, which was we found that car and it was a, uh, the same as the one that Elvis had in Australia mm-hmm. and it was a one-off and it was, we couldn't, I mean, you know, Normally when you're shooting a big car sequence, you get one like a buck where you can take the doors off or you can take the seats out or the bit of ceiling or whatever you need to do. And this car we couldn't touch. And I again, it was a very emotional scene for the actors. And, um, and Baz said to me, can we shoot the three cameras at once? So one would be in front of them. And one would be over shoulder Priscilla to Elvis, one over shoulder Elvis to Priscilla. And um, I went, oh, yeah, I suppose. And I, knowing anyone that shot cars know it's a really hard thing if you can't take anything away to light it, have it look beautiful, which we wanted for that sequence. Mm-hmm. Look, it's kind of sad but beautiful, that scene. Um, it's, it's sad because of their relationship, um, but it's beautiful because they still love each other and they... they care about each other um and uh so i spent the time lining up the three cameras having it what i was really happy with the lighting that they weren't the lights weren't in shot and the cameras weren't in shot and it just took a little bit of juggling and i remember we were rehearsing the day before we shot it and then i stayed back with the lighting grips and camera for about an hour and we kind of nutted it out and worked out how to do it and it's one of those things that i think i never want to say no especially to Baz, and he sometimes will throw you a curveball like that. Um, but it was right for the scene, and of course I'm going to do it, and I made it work. And um, But yeah, it's same with running from one set to yeah. another. It wasn't easy, but I worked it out and made it work. And it's always interesting. I remember, I don't know where I read that, but I wasn't expecting that to be a particularly challenging scene. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about what ultimately ended up happening behind the scenes of shooting. You're like, oh, yeah, sometimes it's not the major set pieces that's the hard one. Yeah. It can be the more intimate ones that are far more challenging. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right, especially when you're multicam yeah. and you're on a small set. And the other thing is, you know, what we tried to do with the art department, with, with Catherine Martin and Karen Murphy, the production designers, really early on, is to have as much in camera as we could to give the actors the the space to be on a set that was real, you know, so 360 degrees of set. And we obviously had, you know, blue screen extensions mm-hmm. outside of the hotel room in Vegas and because that doesn't exist 
anymore like it is. And um, But as much as we could, we tried to build everything. And that gives them the flexibility and also gives the actors the flexibility of, mm-hmm. of moving wherever they want. And, you know, we, we were, took out walls and, and stuff every so often. But I think keeping as much as we could in, in camera mm-hmm. really helped. And what was the visual effects elements beyond just set extensions? Was there a lot of VFX that you had to do, or was it pretty, like, simple? Or? It was, it, you know, I think Tom Wood did an amazing job because mm-hmm. it looks really real and a lot of people can't tell <laughs> where the visual effects are. For the audience extensions, always, we had to... Um, I think the biggest crowd we had was, like, um, 400 audience members. And this, mind you, I have to say, this is when... We went back after hiatus in COVID. Mm-hmm. We had 400 people here um, in a bubble. And um, so the extensions of um, the, the showroom, the audience in the, in the atrium, you know, the, where, where the balconies were, are visual effects, and the hayride, which was the concert with the pink suit, mm-hmm. and then Russwood, which was the concert we did... Um, where he sings Trouble and he gets dragged off stage. Uh, that was meant to be outside in a stadium, a baseball stadium. And we were going to shoot it outside, but we knew we had to be there for five days and the weather was not great at that time of year. So we decided to do it on a big stage. And um, so what I had to do is I we, we made these sort of virtual stadium lights that I had in camera, which were... Um, maxi brutes in bunches together and I had them like um, say 50 60 feet away but I had less depth of field and I've dropped the depth of field back so they look like they were further mm-hmm. and then the visual effects extended the stadium and the audience again so the edge of the stadium were in the black and we shot in black um, so they're kind of the biggest sequences, and also Beale Street. We built Beale Street two stories high. It had to, some of it had to be extended to three, and the um, we built four blocks, so the streets had to be extended. They were like a big, big set extensions that we yeah. did, and yeah, yeah, it was really impressive when you started saying that the Hollywood sign sequence mm. that was built interiors, the Beale Street, which going watching into it watching it and thinking of it retrospectively, I did not consider any of that Mm -hmm. or even notice, Mm -hmm. which is really impressive. (laughs) Yeah. I would have not guessed that the Hollywood sign was built interiors. Yeah. Yeah, It was a big hillside that we built. Like it was about 30 foot high. And um, we built like, I think it was the first three letters of the sign. And then um, because we wanted to be at dawn too. So Mm -hmm. to be able to control the light, we did it interior. Um, but yeah, it was a really big set, and and then but the cars driving up, we shot outside. Mm-hmm. The cars driving up and skidding to the top of the sign that was shot outside with blue screen. Again, a big set piece, and just blue screen extensions to put real Hollywood in there. What do you do for prep when you know there's going to be potentially a lot of VFX that day? Is there anything that you do different? Mm-hmm. Well, I try and um, start working really early on with VFX and the art department and the director to talk about what was out that window, you know, what was what's going to be out that window when we shoot this sequence, what's the time of day, what's mm-hmm. the sky look like. Um, and, for instance, that, that um, Hollywood sign, that was actually... We shot that over a few days, the exterior, because it was meant to be at dawn with the light really low, and I lit it. Like, when the sun went behind one of the stages, I had... 
um, tungsten light coming a lot of banks of tungsten lights pouring onto that set, but we only had a really short amount of time each day, so we shot it over about three days. But whenever there's blue screen, I always sit down and make sure everybody's aware. We're all in sync about what's going into that blue screen. And it, it, actually at Graceland, the interior of Graceland, we had backdrop. We had a painted backdrop out those windows, so mm-hmm. that was all in camera. Um, but none of the other um, sequences we did where we saw out the windows because the Vegas, again, the Vegas showroom, they're up like 30 storeys or whatever in um, Elvis and the Colonel's hotel rooms there and their floor-to-ceiling windows. But again, we would talk about what was out that window, where is the sun, you know, here it is. And and the other thing I do now um, on movies is um, my, I had my daughter working with me who also did stills, but she also did what was like a, a reference um, document each week that I made up with my location pictures, my um, inspirational pictures, things that Baz had said to me or given to me and concept art from the art department or VFX. And it's in one document and every week I take it with me on set and show it to the camera department, the lighting department, the grips, everybody, and we just re- defer to it all the time so that that sort of never gets lost what, what you know so you never turn up on a set and go oh wait a minute it's, the sun's over there it's not here you right. know so I do prep for that and and have like images or ideas of sky you know different skies that maybe would work out you know even just as reference like the time of day and, and mm-hmm. the color of the light that's awesome yeah I love the just attention to detail that's mm-hmm. put in this film and what did principle look like in general I know it happened during the pandemic did you guys start shooting then the pandemic happened no we had um, we were just about to shoot we were three days away from shooting and um, then we had to shut down we were rehearsing and uh, we shut down for five months and then came back up mm-hmm. for we had to go back into pre-production for about a month and then um, then we started shooting, and and but look, I think, like you say, um, working on a film like this because of the scale of it and all the different kind of versions of visual language that you have to do, I had to be really prepared. And the other thing I did, which um, it's the first time I've done this, is I went in well to this extent. I had you know my LUTs made up. We had CDLs on the day, which I tested. You know, I'd go out with the camera and shoot um, with the different LUTs and the lighting in the art department to make sure that all the colours were working and <clears throat> the, the, you know, for instance, Beale Street had quite a heavy LUT on it and mm-hmm. so did Tupelo, the beginning of the movie where it goes to the Pentecostal tent. And so they had to be very specific. And then I went to dailies every night and I refined it and I matched the cameras and I matched the footage that we'd shot before or if second unit had gone with the drone, you know, a couple of days later, I'd come in and match it up so that when I got to the... That, that, that footage went all the way through editorial. Besides things like, you know, some of the archival footage was made up with footage that we'd shot that VFX would um, manipulate, you know, with grain or, or you know, have put um, a, 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 like a Super 8 look on it or 16mm or the artefacts of that. But um, so when I got to the DI, it was the film didn't change very much at all from how we shot it. Mm-hmm. because of that, you know, and went through the whole editorial process where it was pretty m- much the way that um, the end film looks. Who is the colours that you got to work for with on this project? Um, 
His name is um, Kim Borgia mm-hmm. and it was his first movie. And a whole lot of different things happened because of COVID and he was a dailies colourist and ended up taking over and doing the whole movie. And um, he he had um, an assistant working with him and her name has escaped me. I'm very sorry, but I'm sure you can look it up on IMDb. She did a great job. Um as well, and yeah, so he kind of stepped up. And Baz is, can I just say, Baz is great at mm-hmm. doing this. A lot of people that work with him have come up through um, working with him in a in a you know a, a smaller capacity and being advancing their career mm-hmm. over the years on his films. My second unit um, DP Jay Torter worked on Moulin Rouge as the um, loader. And then worked on Australia as a focus puller. And then when when we were doing Elvis, he was my B cam operator. Jason Elson was my A cam operator. He was my B cam operator. And he also went and shot the second unit. So he's great at sort of in, uh, giving people opportunities and mm-hmm. uh, and seeing people's talent and, and encouraging it and being part of developing that in, in awesome. on his movies. Yeah, which is great. That's really awesome. So I guess. You know, Elvis was a really awesome film, but you had the opportunity to work with Baz again. What was it like? What is it like when you're approached by a director you've never worked with? And what do you look for out of a director as a cinematographer? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the first thing I do, the reason I pick a film is because I like the script and I mm-hmm. like the story. And then I'll meet with the director and work out if I feel like it's a good fit and they work out whether it's a feel like it's a good fit with me but i feel like my job is like a bit of a chameleon because i have to um work out within the first few meetings how they want to work with me mm-hmm. and whether um they want me to be part of developing the visual language some directors will come and say i've got no idea mandy can you just work out how to do this and and then i kind of will sit with them and just talk about story and try because i feel like every director has a story in their head and some can't work out how to, to tell it in terms of cinematography. So that was then it's my mm-hmm. job to help them do that. And then I'll just do tests and I'll show them and I'll get them to understand how the lenses work and that the lenses that I'm choosing are correct or the format's correct. Um, and then some directors will have ideas that they are very specific about and then I'll say, great, you know, and... and um, let's develop those together or or some directors are a real stickler and get you to do something exactly how they've they've mm-hmm. um, envisaged it or they've got an idea exactly what lenses they want to use it and then so i just have to fit into that way of working yeah. that's awesome yeah it's always you always hear about the director how they pick everybody but i always think it's really nice to hear about another department what they look in look for from their leader from mm-hmm. the script because I think that's important mm-hmm. especially in the collaborative process filmmaking is such a collaborative like sport yes that's always <laughs> I want to say it's like a collaborative sport it's very invasive <laughs> <laughs> um, but something with the film industry I think it would be really awesome to hear obviously you're at the top of your career you're doing these amazing amazing motion pictures but the current state of cinematography and where you just see it going obviously mm. technology advances so quickly uh, just the stuff with green screens and blue screens we have people using the volume now what do you see in cinematography and is there anything that particularly excites you with the future of it mm-hmm. i think there's been a really great thing that's happened is the relationship between cinematographers and vfx 
And um, in my experience is um, because I felt like my very first time that I worked with VFX, this is like 20 years ago, and they were doing something blue screen, they would just take it away and do it and then you'd see it at the end. And now part, my process is much more involved with them and I get involved with them really early on and we do tests and we talk the whole time. We're always on set together discussing um, what's happening with the shots and what we need to do for them and be able to get enough plates for them and things like that. But also in terms of the volume, I know um, I've only worked on a volume once, an LED volume, but I've worked in virtual camera on the film I just did and then I hear Russell talking about Avatar, is that it's the um, the departments now, the cinematographer, I'm involved like way early on and all the way to the end. Like I finished shooting Snow White in August and I know I will be involved in part with the VFX team for the next year mm-hmm. and I'll be involved in in the final so that I feel is a really good thing about our relationship now yeah. is that we're part of the 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 process of keeping the visual language mm-hmm. in the original idea of storytelling right and what are your thoughts how this whole merger with just game engines and the way the gaming industry is influencing the way the film industry and just the adaptation of both of them are you excited with what's happening i mean in video games you see some of the like technology that they're using with motion capture and a lot of actors and directors moving towards that space do you see yourself as a cinematographer ever being interested in maybe tiptoeing into that um I have already. Yeah, okay. I, I can't really talk about it because I did, but I did some virtual camera stuff on Snow White with oh, okay. the film I just did. Um, and also um, I know talking to people like Greg Frazier about working with the volume, The and I have sat down with the mm-hmm. Game Engine people, and the more they talk the same language as us, it's, that is happening, that, yeah. that will be more in sync. And so when you work in... Um, in post-production, in um, lighting, for instance, and the way that it's been developed in animation and, like we are saying, in Avatar, more and more the, the lighting fixtures are being built into the game that, yeah. so that they're common lighting fixtures that we both understand, whereas originally they weren't. You know, they would be just pointing a light and it, what was the light? You know, it was just a, a source and they didn't have bounce and diffusion and so all those things are changing mm-hmm. and the, and the, there's more integration happening and more um coherence i suppose yeah it's really interesting i love everything that's happening and it always just on like a purely like philosophical level in the creation of just a movie it's cool to see this convergence happening and obviously film is going to be around for a long time it's not like films going anywhere but We've had this long period of shooting on celluloid, what that means, how we've adapted it to digital. And I'm always excited for better or for worse. I know some people don't like high frame rate or when Peter Jackson and Andrew Lesney did it for 48 frames, but I'm always excited to see how we can use the digital format, which is completely different and maybe not as restrictive as shooting on celluloid and what can come from that. So it's always cool to hear like a cinematographer like yourself, what the perspective of the future could be. Mm. It is exciting. Yeah, and it's good. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's 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 a good collaboration. Yeah. And when everybody's working together, you make a better film. Absolutely. You know? That's awesome. Here's a wellness lifestyle question. Yes. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time traveling. You have to go between Los Angeles, Australia. 
what do you do one to stay focused and inspired as a cinematographer, but also outside of film, how do you stay on top of just being a human being? Mm -hmm. Um, I, well, when I'm, when I'm not working, I still see a lot of movies and Mm -hmm. go to galleries and I take photos and, um, go to photo exhibitions. Um, I just can't, that's just part of my life. You know, that's part of me to look at art. Um, and, I do try and, like, take time out and see my family, spend time with my family, go to the beach, hang out, read books um, and look after myself. And um, I feel like I've got to a point where I don't kind of get super stressed about things and I'm able to handle that. But that's experience, you know. But but I make sure that when I've got time off, I do things for myself and and see people I want and be with people I want to be with. Yeah. And looking back at, I guess, at your long career, is there anything particularly with what you know now that you could have challenged yourself maybe doing differently back then, whether it's just like time management? Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you're more like uh, in tune with now? I think, um, yeah, I think it's not being afraid. Mm-hmm. Like now I'm not afraid by of anything. You know, I love getting a challenge and being able to do something different. And I think in the past I used to be really worried about it. And and sometimes I think some cinematographers can, you know, there's different types of cinematographers because some do a similar thing and they have a style and they're very comfortable with the style and they get employed because of that. And um, But I always feel like I want to be doing something new and I love doing that. So I think I wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been so scared. And I think also the collaboration. You know, I, I, I remember when I first started shooting and I thought it was my sole responsibility to make the film look great. And now I realise that, you know, I have gaffers and grips and camera department that are there to help me and to give me ideas and to collaborate and I'm, I, I get people around me that are going to bring something to the movie. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have been so afraid of that before because it only enhances yeah. your, your um, ideas. Is there a specific challenge or something that you haven't done yet in your career that you're really eager to do, whether it's a genre or something specific to cinematography? Yeah, I would love to do um, a big action movie. Um, I mean, I did Mulan, which had a lot of great martial arts and and, um, battle sequences, and that was fantastic. Uh, I think, like, from when I was about 16, I said, I want to do a James Bond film, and um, I still do. So something like that would be great. I would love to do that. I would love to have that Well, whoever's watching this, if you know someone (laughs) at James Bond, you know, getting the next one going. Ooh, I don't know. There's just, do you get hear that feedback? Okay, I think it's... Let's see. Okay, I think we're okay. Uh, yeah, James Bond would be pretty awesome. Yeah. That would be an amazing ride. Well, I think, Mandy, this has been an amazing conversation. All of the insight that you've given, obviously, Elvis was an amazing film, and you can watch it now. It's on HBO Max, or where is it streaming? Yes, on HBO Max. Yeah, I believe yeah. it's HBO Max. So for those that have not seen it yet, if you can catch it in a theater somewhere and it's still playing, obviously, then it's the preferred format to watch Elvis. But definitely stream it. It's an amazing film, and especially before the Oscar nominations and we get really into the thick of the award season, it is something to watch. But one final question for those that look at where you are today <laughs> and want to be a cinematographer, what is just a little bit of advice that you would give them to encourage to say that it's possible? I think, um, you know, if you have a passion 
to, to follow it and, and to be persistent. And it's not an easy job, and um, but it's very rewarding. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's been a great career choice for me. I just say you just need to work really hard and know that that you've got to be persistent and to shoot as much as you can. Yeah. And and to be my biggest thing that I think is really important is to be very respectful of the whole crew and other people and working with people um is a collaborative um you know uh especially filmmaking. It's got to be all the departments have to be in sync for it to work the best it can. And so about dealing with conflict and um and issues that come on set is to be respectful of people and trying to make a calm environment and mm-hmm. that's what I try and do. You know, that's amazing and, yeah. advice. I think everybody can learn from that, whether if you want to be a cinematographer mm. or a costume designer, collaboration, respect, it goes a long way. Plus yeah. you want to have fun while making a movie yes. and not hate it at yes. the same time. So, <laughs> But for anybody that is watching, this is a period for questions and we would love to hear what questions you have for Mandy about any of her recent projects or career advice. But Mandy, for those while the questions file in, uh, how can people keep up with you? I know you're on Instagram. What's mm-hmm. your Instagram handle? It's Mandy Walker DP. Mm-hmm. Definitely. One word. Yeah, drop her a DM. She wants to know what you think of Elvis. <laughs> uh, and if there's anything else that you have in terms of, well, you have Snow White coming up. I know mm-hmm. that's also still in post, but do you have any just like insight or anything you want to share that you're allowed to? Um, I, I can't tell you much better, but it, it's going to be beautiful. And we had the amazing Rachel Zegler and Gal Gadot as our cast and I worked with Mark Webb for the first time Mm -hmm. who was great and um, I'm really proud of it I think it's going to be amazing it won't be out till 2024 though well you'll be back here to talk about it right yes I will (laughs) (laughs) amazing David let us know if there's any questions Um, we're still waiting for a few questions in so get your question in now but you were talking earlier about some of the different uh, ways that you prepped especially for Elvis and I was thinking about when I saw the movie in theaters and you were doing you know, the scene for the 1968 comeback special where he's doing, you know, Austin Butler is doing Elvis performing the If I Can Dream song. We're getting in the white suit, the very, very famous, you know, Elvis's comeback and all that stuff. While Austin's performance was so historically accurate, what really blew me away was how visually accurate the photography was. Can you talk about like that process of like, like if you almost cut them side by side, granted mm-hmm. it's, you know, not four by three and all those kinds of things, but it's so, there's something so magical about how you captured it in camera. Talk about that process of like, what got you there? Did you go into that reference to it? Did you go back to the archives of CBS and all those kinds of things? Yeah, no, we did. We we had access to a lot of archival footage and, and in, and some of the um, concert footage was re um reprinted and and um transferred for us to look at so we had pretty good quality um and what i tried to do was replicate the lighting exactly but i tried to also make it a little prettier than it was especially for that tv footage that's why i integrated led lighting into it so he was lit with fresnels on the on the um tv stage but i had a lot of LED lighting around. So, and when he was on that sort of square, you know, that that underlit white square with all the audience around him, same thing. I had the um, the Fresnel lights lighting, backlighting him, and I also worked it out so that when the camera moved round, 
the backlight would chase him and I did it, I rehearsed it and I practised it so that you wouldn't see it. But I didn't ever want him to be front lit with some horrible light. So I kind of took a little bit of artistic liberty with the train spotting sequences, but as much as I could, as you say, you watch it side by side and it looks very similar. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I was wondering if you chased with the back like in that the the kind of the round tip was wearing the black, you know, leather suit and all that kind of stuff. Yep, yep, that, yeah. that on that, that was, one definitely. I mean I do that hard. anyway. I did that on the yeah. concert sequences too in the international showroom is he would have backlight on him and then when the camera moved around the back of him that would dim down so that he wasn't front lit by a really hard, strong light and the follow spots would be a strong backlight when we sure. came around behind him. We have another question from Kurt where Kurt wants to know, how do you kind of go about picking your crews, especially when you're traveling so much? You know, are there people that you bring all the time or mm-hmm. are, there, are you constantly introducing new people, some fresh blood, so to speak? <laughs> I do. Um, I do both. I mean, when I'm in Australia, I try and get the same people that I've always worked with who um, uh, have have done projects with me before. But there's always somebody new. Um, and the same in the States, I have a, a crew that I try and get together. But when, for instance, I just did Snow White in London, I had nobody with me that I've ever worked with before. So what I do is I call other DPs um, and I think, like Brendan was saying before, there's such a great community of directors of photography who will call each other and say, hey, I'm going to Boston, I'm going to London, who have you... And I'll find out somebody's done a film there and say, who have you used, were they, what were they like? And then I interview them and see if I kind of... Personality-wise, I feel like we're going to get on and that's how I choose them. And, and I've had really great experiences by doing it like that. I don't ever sort of bring someone on fresh who I've never spoken to anyone about except for commercials because when I I work all over the world in commercials and I have to go on who the production company give me so that's even harder because then you know especially in some countries where I don't speak the language I have to then adapt and and kind of get them to work the way I want them to work or work out how they work in that country so it's always a juggling act I think. We've got another question from Jessica. She asks, in pre-production, what other aspects would you recommend researching? For example, I love that you researched archival footage and even lighting fixtures of that time. Is there anything else? Um, the, uh, the lenses. And also, um, I just I, I look at things visually and then try to work out how I can do it in a modern way. Um, that looks the same, you know, like, for instance, the um, the um, Beale Street and the LUT that I created and the lenses I used were based on the um, the references from Gordon Parks, but I'm not working with the same film stock and I'm not working with the stills camera. So the, I do a lot of sort of testing and, and um, a lot of it just ends up coming down to working by eye, you know, and, and, um, and seeing if if we need more atmosphere in the images or on set and, you know, I'd work with diffusion and stuff like that, Um, physical diffusion I mean, like um, smoke. And, um, yeah, so I think it's it's a matter of sometimes I'll see a painting and say, oh, my, how am I going to do that? How am I going to create that? And, and and a lot of the time it's it works, I work on my gut feeling and then I just look at a whole lot of different things. Like for, before every film I always go in um, – and look at cameras and then I go into Panavision and look at 
talk to Dan and then look at a whole lot of different types of lenses and then say, well, this one's good except, you know, for instance, the T-Series for Elvis. I said, they're great, but they're too clean and they don't look like 70s anamorphic. So how do we get them back to that? You know, things like that. Sometimes a lot of it's a gut feeling rather than a technical Mm. reason. Very cool. I'll just point out that Dan Suzaki is the the head of optics at Panavision that we're all familiar mm-hmm. with. And last question, I think, is I know you've got a you've got a jet on us pretty soon, so I'll give you this last question of um, w- kind of what is your go to? Is there a go to, or is it project specific when it comes to cameras and lenses? This comes from Kira, and uh, does it differ project by project? Do you have anything that's your favorites? Mm. Um. No, it is project to project. I, I think, though, that I have kind of – I've always used um, Alexa and Arri cameras when I've gone to digital and I feel very comfortable with them. I feel comfortable that I can manipulate them if I want and the images and um, that seems to be the look that also – I have to say it does remind me of film of how it, it – um, the, the, it, how the, the sensor works with colour and I understand now how it works with dynamic range. And so I feel very comfortable with that camera, but I don't always do the same thing with colour and I don't always do the same. And I definitely have different lenses and, and shoot different formats for um, each project. And it comes from storytelling. I mean, it's really about the emotion you're trying to create and and for, um, for instance, for Elvis, the time period and... And, um, you know, the emotional journey of a character and it comes from that. It starts with script. It starts with script, talking to the director and then working out technically how to get there. Amazing. Do you have any more questions? That's great. There is one more Mm -hmm. question I'll throw in here. Did you use uh, any diffusion on the lens, like any sort of filtration for Elvis? No, I didn't. I, I got the lenses to a point where I felt like they were looking more period-like and um, the spheros that I had for the first part of the film up till um, the Hollywood period, I felt like they could, they worked for all those lighting changes and a little bit more of a flatter image, not super, super sharp, a bit more like what film would have been. And we also, like I said, we did live grain on top of a lot of our images that helped put put um, put a texture back into it. That was done in post um, not on set. Were you previewing the live green on set? Too? No, we didn't. No. We did it all in post. We did tests with it beforehand and sort of worked out where we would be sitting. And so I knew already when we were shooting, but um, where we would use it. But no, it was finessed in post. Very cool. That's awesome. Those are all our questions. Amazing. Well, Mandy, thank you so thank much you. for your time. We really appreciate you stopping by Filmmakers Academy and sharing your creative process. It's super exciteful, and we wish you the best of luck with this award season. Thank you. Also, definitely keep us in mind when Snow White comes around. Yes. We want you back here to talk about all the amazing things I know that you employed, especially with some of the more um, like video game digital aspects with uh, VFX that you've employed in that. So. All right, everyone, stay tuned for more Finding the Frames. Make sure to get at Mandy on Instagram, and we look forward to the next one. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. 
take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20. And join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.